This is Broccoli. Content that's good for you. This episode may feature language some listeners might find offensive. Is it just me, or did 2019 feel like one long fever dream? It was a year of protests, Brexit deadline extensions, divisive politics, climate records, and high street favourites going into administration. Thomas Cook collapsed, leaving 150,000 people stranded abroad. Department store Debenhams closed 22 of its branches and even endless voucher codes couldn't save Jamie's Italian. I guess people never forgave Jamie for his awful attempt at jerk rice. Bakery chain Greg's had better luck, though. Greg's launched a vegan sausage roll. And despite Piers Morgan crying over it, the company saw huge profits. In even more unexpected news, the CEO of Greg's has recently become a vegan himself. He watched a Netflix documentary and decided to ditch meat and dairy. I too remember watching Cowspiracy and being a vegan for a grand total of eight days. Good to know he's just like the rest of us. The rise in veganism is undoubtedly linked to the mass panic surrounding climate change. We were told we only had 12 years to stop global warming. Then early last year, this number was revised to 18 months by scientists. The Kardashian family dominated the news. Forbes named Kylie Jenner the youngest self-made billionaire. But many questioned how she could be self-made when she was born into immense wealth. Kim managed to upset an entire country when she named her shapewear brand Kimono. The biggest scandal, however, was when Kylie's best friend Jordan admitted to kissing Chloe's boyfriend Tristan. Jordan was excommunicated from the family and then did that iconic Red Table talk. But Kylie upstaged her by singing, Rise and shine. Positive news, abortion was decriminalised in Northern Ireland. Stormzy headlined Glastonbury and who could forget when Colleen Rooney became the greatest detective of our time. This is your Broccoli Weekly and I'm your host, Diora. In this episode, we'll be looking back at 2019. I'm joined by culture writer and columnist Daniele Dash and political journalist and commentator Mike Indian. It feels like British politics has been very intense, but nothing's actually happened. Do you know what I mean? Like nothing productive has actually happened. So it's a very weird place to find ourselves in. So just to recap, these are the biggest things that have happened this year. There have been Brexit delays. We were meant to leave in March 2019. And then Theresa May stepped down because she just had enough. She was like, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. Then Boris Johnson became prime minister. Some people were shocked. Others were expecting it. Then there was a the whole drama about proroguing the government just before we were meant to leave the European Union again. Then it was ruled unlawful to do it so close before Brexit. House Speaker John Burko resigned. He said that Brexit was one of the biggest mistakes the UK has made since the Second World War, which is quite a statement to make. And then we had the general election and the Conservatives won by quite a big margin. Mike, please tell us what is happening now since the election results have been announced and what are the latest developments? So by the time you're all probably listening to this, we will be on course to leave the European Union. And I think the fact we can say that after three and a half years is quite significant. 
the fact is that a year ago, Theresa May had just survived a vote of confidence among her own MPs. We've had three postponements to Article 50. Parliament was in deadlock. There was, I think, a missed opportunity in the last 12 months for the opposition parties to have come together and, and agreed an alternative to Brexit. To me, having a second referendum wasn't really a good enough option to have on the table. And this is where I think the Labour Party particularly came unstuck because there was no sense of, I think, conviction to just propose rerunning an exercise, but not to propose what leaving the EU might look like is a fundamental weakness in Jeremy Corbyn's argument. It did not, in my opinion, cost him the election. I think his many failings as a leader, as a politician, led to that. But the fact that we're bookending this decade with a majority government, the largest government majority since 1987 in my lifetime, it's a phenomenal political achievement. And Boris Johnson has many, many failings as a man and probably as a politician as well, I would say. But he does deserve credit for that achievement. It's a very remarkable one. But how he uses that power is going to be interesting because he can now operate for the first time in three years without any checks on his power. Mm. But do you think it's Boris Johnson's achievement or is it the way everything was set up for him to win? I mean, he essentially hid in a fridge to avoid reporters. He was dodging all the interviews. Danielle, what do you think about that? I think that we're in this new place where the Conservative Party spent an extra ordinary amount of money campaigning on social media, targeting the voters that they wanted with the kind of messaging that they understood would resonate. And I think while I'm devastated and the election, the results of the election having like a physical toll on me, which I've never experienced before, um, I'm also happy. I'm happy now we know. I think for a really long time, Britain was under some, you know, pretense. We're a tolerant society. We love all different kinds of people. And now we have proof, out of shadow of a doubt, proof that this country is so comfortable with racism that they elected somebody like Boris Johnson, who has this ability to say these really hurtful, damaging things to the most marginalised in our society. And he still won with an overwhelming majority. So that lets me know that this country isn't where it thinks it is. And we have a lot of work to do. But I think that just having that on the surface makes me feel like, okay, you cannot gaslight me anymore. Can't pretend that it wasn't there. Like, we know what it is. And now it's about the rest of us trying to figure out how we can support each other through this next five or 10 years of a conservative government. And I think once the fear and the, you know, disillusionment subsides and we start organizing and also looking after ourselves and each other, I think we're going to be okay. But it's a, it's a worrying time now with the way that the politics is going, I think. Boris Johnson talks about uniting the country through Brexit. How are we going to do that when, as you say, Danielle, we feel so divided? It's not going to happen. <laughs> we have to be honest about the numbers in this election. So Boris Johnson won, there was two thirds turnout in this election, which is about normal. You know, two thirds. So one third of the country did not vote. So I think we don't talk enough about them. This is the most important election, not just of a decade, probably of my lifetime. It represented, I think, for the first time in 40 years, 
there was a real alternative on the ballot. People could choose between two very different ways of running the country. Both had a populist bent to them, but there was a more of a socialist element in Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto. And something very different in the Tory manifesto that I'm not entirely sure how to quantify it yet. It's not traditional Thatcherism by any stretch of the imagination. It's a more populist, right-wing, nationalistic tone to it. And for somebody who's seen the last decade of politics, this is the end of my first decade covering politics, and I've seen politicians of all hands try to grapple with the same issues. I remember Gordon Brown a decade ago trying to deal with immigration, saying British jobs to British workers, calling Gillian Duffy a bigoted woman because she had concerns about immigration. And it's towns like Rochdale that the Tories actually the seats that won the Tories this election. Boris Johnson got 44% of the vote, so that's roughly just about a third of the country voting for him there. What happened instead? This is more a story, I think, of how the Labour Party has moved in a direction that I wouldn't say was the wrong one, but it took it away from a coalition that allowed it to win three elections in the decade before this one, because no Labour leader apart from Tony Blair since 1976 has actually won a general election for the Labour Party. And Jeremy Corbyn's appeal was such that he put on votes in areas that Labour were already strongest in, like London, like university towns, like Canterbury. But he couldn't keep the votes where Labour had had them for the last century or so. And that's what gave the Tories effectively five, probably 10 years in power. Yeah. And I think you were saying the way in which they were running their ideas of um, what they were going to do with Brexit. And you didn't believe that was part of the reason why, um, you didn't think that overall that was why he lost. But I think when you look at all of those things together and you look at the way that they weren't targeting the places where they were weakest at. So those people felt ignored and those people felt justified in voting for the Conservatives who made a really big, strong turnout to get their votes and support them and tell them what they were doing. And so I think that Jeremy Corbyn's inability to really explain what kind of leader are you for everyone? And we get it. We understand, like, when it comes to the socialism, like, I'm all for that, you know, like, let's do that. Like, I get it. But how are you going to attract those people who are a little bit nervous about that and people who are feeling, uh, what do you call it, economically anxious about stuff? And what are you gonna t- how are you going to talk to them about immigration? And, and what is your plan for Brexit? Because we're not having a second re- referendum. You're absolutely right. And I don't think, even though that's what people want, it's not going to happen. So, what are you going to do with Brexit? What's your plan for Brexit? And his inability to have like really strong, clear messaging around that, that was something that hurt him. And we haven't even started talking about the anti-Semitism. So for me, it's just like, okay, how do we learn from that for the next leader of the Labour Party? How do we maybe get back another kind of Tony Blair um turnout in the future? But I think for now, I think that we have to take this L We have to investigate, we have to look at it and we have to figure out what we're not doing right. And I think a lot of that is about the the fact that Jeremy Corbyn's messaging was really loose and airy-fairy when my man Boris Trump was saying three words, get Brexit done, that's it. Not how or what, whether he said get Brexit done. And that's what people that, that's what people want to hear. We want to get it done. That's what sticks, right? That's it. That's what people remember. And that's I remember it. every um, sort of question he was ever asked by a reporter or by someone who was conducting an interview. You know, at one point he was asked about Islamophobia. Look, there is a case of rampant Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. What are you doing about that? Do you know what he replied? Get Brexit done. Yeah. He swerved the question to make it about Brexit. And that's what he did that Jeremy Corbyn 
didn't do. Yeah. I mean, we also have to note that Boris Johnson managed to avoid probably the only serious bit of media scrutiny he would have had. Andrew, the Andrew Neil interview did not happen. Now, for most people, you, know, you may have your views about how the BBC conducted itself throughout the election mm. campaign. And there were, I think, questions that have to be asked, you know, Channel 4 as well. The media and how it relates to, to, to Johnson and Corbyn is very different to how it related to political leaders David Cameron, Gordon Brown and Nick Clegg a decade ago. The fact is now that, and I think Daniel spoke about this, people can now target their messages so much more effectively online. We don't really have to worry what the Daily Mail or the Sun or the Telegraph, you know. And to me, the, the most frustrating thing I think I've heard since this election has been the Labour Party blaming large chunks of the print media, for example, or the, the broadcast media, when they were claiming the day before the election they'd fought a very successful social media campaign as well. If it had worked, you would have mobilised the most apathetic set of the electorate who are the 18 to 24 year olds in this country and got them out to vote if you promised them real change. But at the end of the day, they looked at Labour's programme, they looked at the man in charge and they couldn't be bothered to turn out and vote. And that says a lot about Jeremy Corbyn's and those around him, their misplaced faith in the man and his ability to reach a section of the electorate who have historically been beyond the reach of any politician. Yeah. And I think as well, like picking up on what you were saying about the BBC and that distrust thing, I read Hugh Edwards, it was like an open letter that he wrote. I think that the tone of it was that we're not biased just because you don't like the news that we're reporting or something like that. And I felt at the beginning of this year, I was in this place where I needed, you know, you need that stability. Every night you need that thing at 10 o'clock. So at 10 o'clock, I would rush home and I would watch um, BBC News at 10 and I wanted to see Hugh Edwards and I wanted to see Laura Coonsberg. Like, because in my mind, those are people who were going to tell me where I've gone and that's what I needed. And I had this really, this relationship that I didn't think I realised how trusting I was of Laura Coonsberg. And I was telling somebody at the office, oh, I can't wait to hear what Laura Coonsberg has to say about something. And they were like, Oh, she um, she slants right, and I was like, she does. And then as we started reaching towards when the election was called and stuff, I was looking at her Twitter and I was like, hold on, what's going on here? And then the fact that they spent so much time speaking about the anti-Semitism, which let's not lie, yeah, there's a problem with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, and whether or not you feel that that is not important to look at doesn't change the fact that Jewish people felt uncomfortable. And now if I was a black woman in the Labour Party and I felt uncomfortable, you can't tell me that there was no anti-blackness in the Labour Party. So let's not play those games. So there's anti-Semitism there. But where was the reporting about the Islamophobia in the Conservative Party? I mean, the really concentrated and focused attention that needed to be put on that. Where was their own anti-Semitism problem? Where was their anti-blackness problem? Where was any of that discussion around that? So for me, I find it hard when, especially the BBC, feels so passionate that, you know, we are above reproach because we are doing... I'm like, no, guys, it's okay. Everybody's been taking L's. You need to take one as well. You didn't do a good enough job of that impartiality, which you're so proud of. I don't understand why Nagamun Chetty was all this kind of investigation because she said that Trump was a racist. Meanwhile, Laura Koonsberg's doing all kinds of manner of nonsense on Twitter. What, what did she do she with revealed, the... She was saying that the... The postal post, vote. postal vote was not slanting in Labour's favour. Yeah, and, and which you're is, not meant to do you're that. You're not meant to do that. But for me, I just know that she was running amok on Twitter. And I'm like, no, guys, you're a trusted media establishment. And it's very important for our ability to do politics. As much as everything's on social media, we need to be able to 
trust somebody. And so for me, it's just like, I think in the next five to 10 years, we're really going to have to figure out how we're going to get past this fake news thing. And really, there has to be somewhere that we trust or else people are just going to be out here doing wildness. And that's what's been going on this last five to 10 years. And I, I want it to stop. So I'm hoping in the future that we'll be able to do something. You mentioned the fake news and the campaigns. It was found that 88% of conservative campaigns were false. They had some kind of lie in them and then zero of Labour ones. And that's really interesting because the way BBC framed that, there was an article, they were like, oh, the campaign that was full of lies. But actually, no, it was just the Conservative Party had 88%. That is crazy. And I feel like you've hit a nail on the head there talking about trust there is no trust there is no trust for the parties there's no trust for the media there's no trust that minorities will be actually looked after and yes we have spoken a lot about anti-semitism and as you said we need to talk about it it's an issue but no one's been talking about islamophobia no one's been talking about anti-black racism within this country that's institutionalized it exists in every part of our society Um, It's just really interesting how this election, it felt like minorities didn't even exist. Mm, I think you're right. So we've obviously established how we've got here and the issues we've been facing, but we need to look forward as well. So we've got Brexit coming up. And when is the date on that, the official date? So if the withdrawal agreement bill goes through and it's ratified by the European Parliament, it'll be the 31st of January will be the last day we're in the EU. So basically that we'll have a month left of being inside the EU, but then we have a transition period after that of 11 months. So what's the basic summary on that deal? The deal, very similar to Theresa May's deal in a sense, but there are some important caveats. The Tory majority means that Boris Johnson has stripped out certain things in the bill, particularly parliamentary oversight of trade deals, for example, and parliament getting a vote on the extending the transition period. So this is the price of getting a Tory majority at this election. There's less oversight of the deal itself, but this is only agreeing how we leave the EU. It's the divorce terms, if you will. The Prime Minister is then committed, and he's going to commit to this in law, again, not a very good idea in my opinion, to getting a trade deal done in the next 11 months. Now, this is unprecedented. This has never been done before. He says it's possible. I don't think it is, if I'm honest. Even then, the kinds of trade deal we're talking about, the UK economy is largely service-based, particularly financial services makes up almost a quarter of, you know, of that particular sector. For London, especially financial services is very important. Now, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Northern Irish border, which is, again, very important for people who live in that part of the country, but it won't cover the large section of our economy. And also, if he gets the wrong deal for manufacturing jobs, the Northeast is the only UK region that net exports. There's lots of people who voted Tory in that election who may find themselves royally shafted by a particularly bad trade deal. Wow. I'm worried for them. I think there's a plant in Northern Ireland that makes the Rootmasters and they... They went out of business and Boris Johnson had promised them something and it, it didn't it didn't come to fruition. And so I look at those towns where all they do is make something and they are relying on this man who he's not trustworthy. And I worry for them because I understand that the, everyone needs a job. People like to work. People like to feel like they're contributing not only to their family, but also to society and their community. And so I'm like, OK, how is he going to make sure that those people are well taken care of? Because they voted for him. They trust him. Again, back to this word trust. So I'm hoping that in this next year, during this 11 months where he's trying to get this trade deal, I'm really hoping that these people are going to be um, rewarded for that vote that they, you know, cast. Just wanted to finally mention the Scottish vote, also Northern Ireland. 
and Wales, do you think there are going to be referendums on separation, you know, Scottish separation, potentially United Ireland? The United Ireland question is the most contentious one because Ooh. that can easily happen, I think, given the fact that we have more nationalist MPs now in Parliament than unionist. I think that's very much on the cards, yes. The Scottish independence referendum, Nicola Sturgeon has, I think, proven that she can win the parliamentary vote. She got about 40% of the vote in Scotland, took quite a few of the seats. The SNP, however, have their own problems coming up. They've got the trial of the former First Minister and SNP leader Alex Salmon starting in the new year on some very serious charges. And Nicola Sturgeon has had to walk a very careful tightrope because she tried to call a referendum after the 2016 uh, vote and that didn't happen. What she is now going to try and do is go down the legal route and expect that wrangling to continue. This next year in Parliament is going to mainly be a clash between the SNP and the Tory party, whilst Labour sorts itself out and tries to work out who the hell is going to lead it out from this lowest ebbs since 1935. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Good news this morning. For two days, the world has waited for a first look at the royal baby boy. And moments ago, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle stepped out in front of the cameras with their new bundle of joy. Meet baby Sussex. Now, let's talk about the royal family. Obviously, been quite the year for the royal family in the UK. Uh, Meghan Markle's had a baby boy. His name is Archie Harrison Mountbatten Windsor, which is quite the mouthful. But it also feels like there's been an active campaign against Meghan this year, which started all the way back when her and Harry started dating. And Harry and Meghan actually ended up suing the mail on Sunday. Harry said he didn't want Meghan to become victim to the tabloids in the same way his mother had. He wrote in Vogue, Unfortunately, my wife has become one of the latest victims of a British tabloid press that wages campaigns against individuals with no thought to the consequences. A ruthless campaign that has escalated over the past year, throughout her pregnancy and while raising our newborn son. Harry also spoke about unconscious bias when it comes to racism. Danielle, what are your opinions on the way the tabloids have treated Meghan this year? I think that we are seeing exactly how the British public as a whole feels about black womanhood and black women, especially when you transpose her into the most beloved family in this country, one of the most recognisable families in the world. I really feel like that's when we're starting to understand the ways in which race operates in Britain and the way that they treated her did not surprise me. It hurt my feelings for her because I think despite people, you know, questioning how naive she could have been when she explained in that documentary on ITV that she had no idea that it was going to be this bad. I believe her because, you know, you know, you know, there's going to be a certain level of scrutiny when you're doing stuff like that. Right. But I think the vitriol and at one point it was just every day there was something online. Somebody had written something and the way that they have the people who are writing these articles and who are, you know, saying these things, um, the way they frame it is in a way of, kind of gaslighting I'm not being racist no I'm just saying da, 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 da. meanwhile people always having to show oh you guys are upset that she guest edited Vogue meanwhile where were you when your Prince Charles was doing house and home and and Camilla was doing da, da, da. no you guys only have energy for this woman why is that oh it's because she's a woman of color is it important to make the distinction because she is 
mixed race and her mum is black, which I think as well has another element of allows people to be even more racist because when you have a black woman, you have two opportunities for bigotry. You have racism and you have the misogyny and that word that we've learned over the past decade, misogynoir, you see it come to the front where this woman is being attacked. And I don't want to give Harry any cookies, but the fact that he used his mouth to articulate the fact that this is racism, there are racial undertones, and he was being polite about it because that's just his nature and he doesn't want to, he's already being controversial, so he doesn't want to twist the knife. But I think that it's very important that he stood up and said, hey, 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 this thing that you're doing, it looks like what you did to my mum. But also, I know that you guys are being racist. And so for me, that is a really big step forward in us being able to talk about it. And I think we are now at this place where we are in Britain uncovering a lot of the stuff that we've been able to pretend. Not When I say we, I'm not talking about the minorities, I'm talking about the whites. I've been able to pretend that hasn't been going on because, you know, in America, racism comes very full force, you know, bumper stickers, they're wearing the hat, the hoods, whatever, you know, they're lynching people and they're letting you know that straight off the boat, like, I am racist. I don't care how you feel about it, make America great. Again, whatever that means. But here in UK, you know, very polite, darling, sweetie. You know, we 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 we, we dress things up, stiff upper lip and all of that. But at the end of the day, underneath your stiff upper lip is what? Racism. And so I feel for, for Megan, but I also, I'm proud of her. I'm proud of the, the decisions that they've made to protect their family. I think that she is a great example of grace under fire, but I also wish that she didn't have to be so gracious because sometimes you got to tell people to suck their mums. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you summed it up brilliantly there. I mean, all I have to add to that is I felt like the tabloids were trying to twist every good thing she was doing into something bad. You know, oh, she's doing something for charity. Oh, my God, what an awful woman. And it's like, it's so see-through what the root of this is. I think it's also very interesting the way the press treated Meghan's dad and his entire existence before the wedding and after the wedding and obviously selling all those stories absolutely and i think that you what what you see there is white supremacy right the idea yeah that no young woman of color we need to keep this alive because a let's not forget the british royal family is one of our most important exports, right? That's how the country makes a lot of money on that. So you need to keep that story alive, right? But also, like, the idea of, like, publishing that letter that she wrote to her dad, which I'll make sure my eyes never see because that's not my business. But I think we cannot ignore the fact that there is an element of wanting to keep her in her place, to let her know, listen, we don't care about your feelings, about your dad, anything like that. You are ours. Because that's what it's about. It's about ownership. That's what they keep reminding her, right? You should let us know when Archie is born, who the godparents are, all of that, because you belong to us now and you're our property. The way it works and differently from other celebrities is because 
they feel as though because we are taxpayers that we deserve that level of ownership and it's like what I appreciate from um, Harry is him letting them know listen I don't know about my brother I ain't never gonna be king so what I need you to do is like respect me and my family but it's um, it's really hard but you do see the ways that white supremacy works on a micro level in this way of like trying to control somebody's life and also uplift the narrative of a man this this dad he can come out and say anything and they're gonna give him time he's on Lorraine and whatever else and it's like no you lot ain't slick like we see what you're doing it's not great and I'm hoping that this year we'll really continue to see the ways in which their movements to protect their family have a positive impact on the way that people are reporting about them because of all the action that they've taken I'm hoping that we're starting to see a new leaf but that might be my optimism and you know my naivety me and me and Megan have that in common (laughs) but that is such an incredible point about the ownership and all the information and all the tabs that the media keeps on Megan. You didn't see that with Kate, did you? She was just uh, Kate's white. She was a nice, beautiful white lady who came, you know, oh, she's a commoner because she's not royal, but actually her family are so rich. And we saw this beautiful Disney-style wedding. And that was it. No questions asked. I'm glad that Harry and Meghan are taking those steps to be more private and take back almost control of their own lives because you're right they have been controlled by the media by the tabloids and you know even when she gave birth there was this expectation that she would be primmed and proper in this church she gave this interview and it's just phenomenal um the amount of stress she probably has to go through to just keep her tight lid on everything and just not say what she thinks and I don't know. I wouldn't be able to do it. I wonder if we have to decide what we really want from the royal family for the next decade, because we have now, for the first time since Princess Diana, two very attractive, dynamic and interesting women who are going to be at the forefront of the royals after the Queen goes. And at some point in the next decade, the Queen will probably pass away. And then the big debate about the future of the monarchy comes to the fore. And let's face it, we all have to think about Prince Charles, but it's also going to be on William, Harry, Meghan and Kate as well. And for the Sussexes in particular... What do we really want from them as a couple? I mean, Harry's not going to be king, barring some sort of you know unforeseen calamity. We can own Meghan as a you know someone who's attractive and different and exciting, or we can have her as this you know some sort of Jezebel in the royal family. It's I cannot understand what the media want from the Sussexes. Me, but for me, I think. I don't want to sass judgment on royal correspondence because I think understanding what happens in the royal family is a very important thing. And for Harry's side, there's a deep, profound mistrust of the media. I mean, how could he not grow up with that at the same time? But they're also, I think, fortunate to live in the decade that they do, that they can take more ownership of how they are presented to the world. They curate their own Instagram account, for example. They have more and freedom. That's a first. To and that's that is, a first. And that is a first. I think for me, watching the ITB documentary reference, when Megan went to, I think it was South Africa, and she said, I'm here with you as a woman of colour. No other royal has been able to say that before. And I think as ambassadors, that's a very potent thing to given the fact that the Queen is still, you know, you know, nominally head of state of large numbers of countries with, you know. I mean, the royal family is a colonialist yeah. 
symbol? I agree with your question. It's a really important question. What do we need from the royal family? And I think that the work that they do in uniting people, yes, the Queen is, you know, part of this colonial power that still has a grip on not only like African countries, but also Asian countries in a way that, you know, that we're still trying to overcome. But that being said, there is a role that they play and the work that Harry does with his charity in Angola, that is vital work in terms of who else is bringing that kind of attention to those kinds of issues. But I think it is highly important that we figure out what we want from these people going forward because they're not going anywhere. The monarchy isn't going anywhere. Literally, if the monarchy like dissolves or whatever, this country is going to dissolve as well because that's our biggest, you know, for our economy. So um, we need to figure that out. I agree. It's very interesting, the role of the royal family and its place in society because Prince Andrew was in the spotlight and for all the wrong reasons. If I'm honest, even I got confused with the story because the allegations were so immense. So to recap, Prince Andrew was friends with Jeffrey Epstein. So Jeffrey Epstein was one of the biggest people in finance in America and he was a convicted sex offender and a trafficker of minors. So really, really crazy stuff here. He was in prison and he died He died in his cell in August last year. There were suspicious circumstances surrounding his death because there were so many conspiracy theories. Maybe there were more people in power who were connected to him and the kind of stuff that went on Mm. with him. Now, here's where Prince Andrew comes in. There have now been some allegations against the prince. A woman named Virginia Jeffrey claims she was sex trafficked into London to have sex with the prince. She said this happened in 2001, so she would have been about 17 at the time. There was a panorama special about it all, and it revealed that five other women who were abused by Epstein were prepared to serve Prince Andrew if he ever visited the US. Now, Andrew denies this all, of course. He says he took one of his daughters to a birthday party, which happened in Pizza Express in Woking in 2001, which is the strangest alibi I've ever heard. And Virginia also claimed that on the night she saw Prince Andrew, he was sweaty. He then said that it couldn't have been him because he has a medical condition, which means he can't sweat. Since all of this, he has been suspended of all his public duties. Now, I just... I'm so confused. Why was he doing TV interviews when these are some really serious criminal allegations here? That interview is going to go down, I think, as one of last year's, probably the decade's most WTF moments, I think. And whoever was advised, he's interesting, there's a Westminster connection because his PR advisor used to work for a cabinet minister, Amber Rudd. They they ended up leaving their post because they advised him not to do the interview. And it, it was apparently his private secretary who pushed him to do it. It's hard to imagine an hour of television that could have gone worse. And for me, it, it sort of bottomed out. And then in the last few minutes, he chose to you know leap into the brown stuff by saying he, that Epstein hadn't behaved honourably. And that little Emily made this line of, he was a sex offender. And it's that, mm. it's it's almost beyond comprehension. And the thing that is deeply frustrating about this is that he's just withdrawn from public life. This isn't the 19th century anymore. You know, you can't just, you know, dis- you can't just disappear off, you know, to your estate in the country and not be accountable for this sort of thing. It raised more questions than it answered. Now, 
we don't know if it's true or not. He may very well be telling the truth. He's not. I'm not a medical expert. <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, if you are shot out of the Falklands or you do lose the ability to sweat. But the fact is that it hasn't done the royal family any favours at all. And this, I think, you know, going back to what Danielle said, I think the royal family's got a very tricky decade ahead of it because their place in society, they've always been able to adapt to survive, but they have, they have had tricky periods. And the last time they were in a situation that was probably this precarious was 1997 with Princess Diana. And now you have a case where someone like Prince Andrew, who has only deepened suspicions around him by his own conduct, is still out there and still at large. And there's no means of redressing. And even, let's be honest here, no empathy for the victims Mm-mm. in all of this as well. Mm-mm. That's just appalling. Yeah. I didn't watch the original interview with Emily Maitlis. I just caught clips online. But I did watch the documentary. And I think that it was devastating just because of the seriousness of what we're talking about. These were vulnerable young women who were brought into this network, this um, spider's web of men who were free to do whatever they wanted to their bodies. And these women are going to live with those scars for the rest of their lives. Just like you said, this idea that, you know, you're just going to come on TV and just talk reckless and then just recede afterwards and not be held accountable is terrifying and it talks about the level of protection and and I think as much as I believe that the monarchy is going to survive this you know this next decade I also think that we're now going to have to start looking in a very real way at what are they allowed to do and why are they allowed to do it because we know now that God didn't appoint those people to be where they are those days are gone but now we have to question how do we hold them to account how do we feel as though okay we're not paying for these people's jollies to go off in in america and do all kinds of manner of illegal immoral stuff like i think that that's where we have to start looking more about how our money is being spent to fund these people's lifestyle and if we are happy with that happening especially for somebody as abhorrent as prince andrew especially because the royal family is so big, right? You've got the main ones. You've got the Queen, you've got Prince Harry, you've got Will and their wives. But like, there are people who are so loosely connected, yet they're still considered to be royal family and being essentially funded by the taxpayer. And that is crazy. The value for money aspect of the royal family is a very important one. But for me, I think it's a question about how they operate in public life as well. And the size of the family is, I mean, Princess Anne, for example, her children don't have titles. Now, that's a, it's a symbolic, but I think quite an important demonstration that there is a cutoff point that, you know, just because you can have privilege doesn't mean you should exercise it. And Andrew, I think, is the best example of how this unchecked privilege has operated. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a trade envoy role until, you know, a few years ago, but he was moving in these circles that most of us can probably not even comprehend. You know, the worlds of high finance and culture and these dinner parties he was describing. And to sit there and to sort of convey that as if it were quite a normal thing and then to, to reach into his head and pull out a Pizza Express in Woking that he may once have driven past. There's a, <laughs> there's a relatability question there. And this, is, this isn't just about the royal family. It's about every single authority structure in this country, whether it's in finance, whether it's in politics, whether it's law. The, mm-hmm. the, the Britain is something that we've always had establishments in there. Yeah. But the structures and how these people operate is still, for most people in this country, beyond their comprehension and understanding. And the people that operate inside them have to think very carefully about how these can be opened up to be understood. Because for most people, the kind of people that Jeffrey Epstein moved in, Prince Andrew moved in, he would have had very little contact with what we might term the real world. And boy, did it show in that interview. Yeah. And I think I think that that's actually an amazing point about 
how we are connected to them and I think how people look at aspirational figures because being in the royal family is an aspirational thing right and so like our question now is about how do we allow people to understand hey this amount of privilege and wealth isn't normal and it shouldn't be acceptable and actually should we allow that like do you think that's fair and I think that these are the kind of conversations we're going to have in this decade it's been a day of rain and rescue with little respite roads are traps this flood water is deep it smells and it's dangerous it feels like 2019 was the year that our collective awareness about the environment was really there and the massive challenges humanity is facing with climate change. You know, we've been thinking a lot about that. Greta Thunberg, a 16-year-old climate activist, was named Time Person of the Year. Scientists told us we really only have about 11 years to stop a catastrophic rise in global temperatures. But there are so many other issues as well that we need to tackle, like loss of biodiversity, pollution levels. In 2019, there were fires all across Brazil. Some were deliberately started by farmers to make space for the cattle. There was an international outcry, but, you know, the Brazilian president essentially told European countries to mind their own business because he accused them of having quite colonial mindsets. There have also been fires all across California. Australia declared a state of emergency and had its hottest day on record. And devastating floods hit the UK as well. Do you think realistically countries like the US, Australia and even the UK are going to be able to tackle climate change with the governments they have now? This is the decade in which the Paris Climate Change Agreement was reached, but we also saw the United States move very firmly away from that. Same with Brazil with Bolsonaro's election. The next decade is going to be the climate change decade. There is no doubt about that. However, I think for me, what worried me about 2019 was how much Greta Thunberg and the personality of that she represented dominated the conversation about it. And for me, we ended up debating how she conveyed her message rather than actually what she was saying. And, you know, was she too privileged? Was she not too privileged? Were Extinction Rebellion too privileged? You know, did they understand, you know, were there enough, you know, people of colour talking about climate change? These are all conversations that, are to some extent important. But the fundamental thing is we're talking about an existential threat for everyone on this planet here. And if we don't start to think seriously about how we tackle it. So in 2019, the government in this country legislated to be carbon neutral by 2050. If Boris Johnson's first job is not, you know, shouldn't be getting Brexit done, it should be how is this the UK going to lead the world in creating a carbon neutral economy? by the middle of the next century, maybe even sooner. I think you're absolutely right. And I think to my shame, I don't know the names of any activists of colour um, who are doing the same kind of work that Greta is doing. I know Greta's name though. And when I, you know, look at recycling, I do think, I hope Greta likes this and, and stuff. And, and, but that's powerful, right? And I think that that's important. It's about getting that messaging out there. But I also think that the fact that we have these governments who are, especially when you look at America, really opposed to the kind of progress that we actually need right now, it's quite disheartening. And I understand why these kids are leaving school and going out and protesting because what exactly are they in school for if we're not going to make the changes that we need to actually save this world and make sure that there's one that they can live in and enjoy and you're absolutely right about it being the climate change decade and I'm fearful especially for the more marginalised people in the world 
because they're the ones who are going to be affected most quickly and most devastatingly by all of the changes that the climate is going to experience in this next decade. Danielle, you obviously mentioned recycling, which is very important, of course. Do you feel like there's too much pressure put on the individual? How does environmentalism actually work alongside the capitalist society that we live in? I think those two things are diametrically opposed. I think that in order for us to really look at making a difference in terms of the amount of stuff we consume and these products that we consume, we have to look at the way that we are targeted to buy more things and to do more things and the way that those companies are not being held accountable in terms of I'll order something from Amazon, which I've started to do less, actually. I've started to order online less because I'm like, do you need it next day or do you need to, do you need to prepare better? Why, like, why, why have you left it to the last moment? Why are you doing this? Because I also think about all the people, the delivery drivers who commit suicide because they can't keep up with their routes and they're on zero hour contracts. This kind of thing where we're looking at environmentalism and capitalism next to each other. We're wasting time. It's like trying to... Have you seen that meme of the guy um, sweeping water at the shore? That's what we're doing, okay? We need to be more mindful about what we're doing, but also hold the companies to account. What have we taught people about next day delivery? What pressure are we putting on the buses and the trucks and the drivers and the this that we're... But also... The amount of packaging that you get, do and does everybody always recycle all of that packaging? And when you say recycling, are these people actually recycling? Are some of these things able to be recycled? So I think that there's a lot of questions that we have to ask about what we assume we can achieve with the current social economic model that we have in place. What you're talking about there is radical change, right? And we need radical change. So that's what groups like Extinction Rebellion are for. There were protests all of last year all across the world, and Extinction Rebellion want governments to declare a climate emergency. What do you make of XR, Mike? I think that, for me, Extinction Rebellion has come to represent both the immediacy of the crisis, but also the limitations of the people who are talking about it. If you think about the celebrities who are most prominent in this movement, Emma Thompson, Benedict Cumberbatch, they're all from a certain section of society here. And if people reflect on one thing from 2019, reflect on the fact that you know, the Extinction Rebellion chose to stop public transport in a very working class part of London, stop people from getting to work. Mm-hmm. Now, Yes, that is important because you're getting attention. But there are many people who are going to have to square the circle of their lives with, you know, having less in it. They already had a decade where their incomes have stagnated. That's just gone. People already have less to live with as well. So we're asking people in the country, predominantly who are going to be poorer than many people, I think, who can probably afford to take time off to protest for Extinction Rebellion, to make big changes to their lives. Change only happens when you carry the majority of people with you. It does begin with the individual, I think, fundamentally, because we have the power to force corporations and governments to change their minds. But Extinction Rebellion will only be at the forefront of that change when they recognise, diversify and bring in more people from more backgrounds to their movement. Okay, Mike. Mike's out here. He's waxing lyrical. I was getting chills and all that. Did you hear that speech? Listen, put that on a T-shirt. Maybe not. Like a... Like a... Like a social, like a, you know, we can put it on environmentally the friendly T-shirt. I don't know, but do something. <laughs> um, I just want to add one more point. XR has, you know, as you said, been accused of whitewashing the environmentalist movement. And the lack of diversity is really apparent in a lot of ways they try to spread their message. I mean, in 2019, for example, they compared the environmentalist struggle to Rosa Parks and the civil rights movement in America. And you just think, 
who is running your social media and why are there not people looking over this and thinking, hang on a minute, maybe let's not do that. But that's exactly what Mike's talking about and the lack of diversity. And that word is annoying to people, but it's the actual reality of it. If you have more people who have decision-making power, let's make that straight. If you have people of colour in the room, um, people with disabilities in the room, and you give them the ability to have decision-making power, they will be able to say something. There's no point having those people in the room if they don't have that power. And then when you give them that power, they're able to tell you, hey fam, you see this thing that you've written here about Rosa Parks? This ain't right, you know? But until you have that, you're going to continue to make those kinds of mistakes, those kinds of gaffes, and it's, it's going to be tiring. But I think exactly what, you know, Mike said in his, you know, debut selling number one album... <laughs> of a speech that he made. I think once you start doing that, then we're actually going to see the kind of change we need. We're going to take a quick look at what happened in the decade. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. It's finally happening. The first event of the 2012 Olympic Games. Serious war is a mess. After six years, the conflict is divided between four sides. Each side. Trayvon Martin, 17, African American, unarmed, was shot as he walked through the Florida gated community in which he was staying. Ebola has taken hold in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The man on the top of the USA's most wanted list, whistleblower Edward Snowden, has fled to Moscow with reports... We never know exactly what caused that elevator brawl between Jay-Z and Solange Knowles, but they are breaking their silence, issuing a joint statement along with Beyoncé. Conscious uncoupling. That's what Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin say they're up to. Not divorce, conscious... In a matter of weeks, the ultra-violent jihadist group calling itself Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, or ISIS began overrunning huge swathes of both The is beginning to show. Five days into the search for Malaysian Airlines flight MH370 and the cracks are appearing in what began as an internationally coordinated search. Scottish voters have rejected independence, deciding to remain part of the United Kingdom. We are approaching one of the biggest decisions this country will face in our lifetimes. Whether to remain in a reformed European Union or to leave. Wow, that was that was quite bleak, wasn't it? What did you make of that? I think for me, the phrase I've heard a lot in the last 10 years has been the phrase the last decade. And I've never really liked that term. I think it implies that we've somehow wasted time or potential has been lost. And if you think about, you know, we started the decade with a very deep and protracted recession since the Great Depression. We had a great deal of international cooperation. The thing that I think for me is that what we've seen is that the right wing in countries like the UK, the US, have been successfully able to unite around a relatively cynical, but I think quite effective theme of populist nationalism. For me, I think this goes back to what we talked about before with Extinction Rebellion. The left has become rather self-indulgent in its own way and the people who style themselves as change makers now have a lot learned the lessons of the people who laid the groundwork for them in the second half of the 20th century, particularly in the 1960s and into the 70s and 80s, that we have become increasingly obsessed by how we are seen by people now. And I think the lesson for the left to learn in the next decade, and you know, the reason it's often called a lost decade by people, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and people around him, is that they care more about how they're seen about 
than about the message they're trying to put across. So if you're thinking about wanting to affect change in the next decade, learn the lessons from the civil rights movement, learn the lessons from people who fought for sexual equality, gender equality, you know, all the way through to about 20 years ago, and just do it. Don't care what people think about you. Press your message of hope home because there's still so much of change that we could have in the next 10 years and it doesn't have to be a lost decade but let's think a little less about how what people think you know think of us and more about what we want to change in society yeah i think that there is a um, a rigidity to the rights way of looking at things right so make america great again get brexit done what that does is really clear and unites the whole of the right but everybody who feels left out of that we are now having to look at ourselves and understand that we have to make space for everyone. And I think I'm a little bit more forgiving because I understand that I think we're relatively quite young in this idea of understanding the different kinds of people that exist within the left that we have to look after. After Trump's inauguration, a lot of my favourite political pundits came out, American ones came out and started talking about the fact that identity politics was to blame for the rise of populism in the States. And for me, I found that really hard because I was like, oh, but you liked identity politics when it was working in your favour and you were electing Barack Obama. But now that we are having to do the work of also accepting all of the other marginalised people, you don't like it so much. So I look at it and I see that, okay, now that we understand that there are so many different people who deserve the same amount of rights and access to um, social services, we can do the work of uniting us all around one message. We're still yet to find what that one message is, but my what I'm excited about is that when we do, it's going to be one that is genuinely inclusive and progressive. But I think it's going to take a while because we're still having to understand the ways in which whiteness works in the left and the way that whiteness works to marginalise people. And it's like, yes, you are a woman, but also you have certain privileges. Yes, I am a black woman and I am marginalised, but I have certain privileges over other people. And I think that the more we continue to have these conversations over the next 10 years, we're going to see us once again gaining back the confidence that we've lost <laughs> during this really hard time but also allowing us to make that change in a political way that's going to make the difference for our children and our children's children. I think you're right Daniel. I think the seeds of hope have really been sown and hopefully in this decade we will see that you know come to fruition and the conversations are there they're happening we have the ability to make things less extreme again. I really hope so. There have been some positive things that happened in the decade. I know it's hard to believe. Women in Saudi Arabia were allowed to drive for the first time in 2018. The most diverse class of lawmakers in history was sworn into Congress in America last year. Same-sex marriage was legal in all 50 US states in 2015. And what good things do you think are coming? I think it's important to say, although people feel cynical and feel, you know, there's a lot to be unhappy about, there is still, historically speaking, never been a better time to be alive. Technological progression, wealth creation, you know, the arc of history is with us in terms of progress. Humanity hasn't stalled on the way here. There always are little bumps here, but there is still time to sow, as you said, the seeds of hope. So think of the next decade as a time to take those opportunities and spread them more equally throughout the world. You know, we are still creating wealth. You know, we still have time to reverse climate change is probably what Daniel's saying, that the issue we can all unite around here. We haven't really had that since probably the end of you know, the fighting fascism at the end of the Second World War. 
there's an opportunity here to create it. So let's recognize that there is still a lot to fight for in this world that's still worth getting out of bed for in the morning. You know, we're not done yet. Oh, what am I looking forward to? I wish you could have another London Olympics. That would be really nice. Like, I think that that was the, that was the time where the whole country, we were of one accord, everybody. And, um, so I want us to do that again, but that's not going to happen. So I don't know what some, something to do with sports that can bring everyone together. That would be nice. But I, I don't know. Like, I think, I think it's more of just a feeling, a feeling of, wow, I think that we are starting to decolonize a lot of institutions in the UK. And I look forward to us doing more of that and, you know, creating opportunities for more people from different backgrounds to occupy positions of power to help us do the kinds of changes that will not only help marginalized communities, because the truth of the matter is, is that when you include people who uh, are you know, disenfranchised in that kind of decision-making um, process, then you actually benefit everyone. So I guess like that's what I'm looking forward. And I know that it's going to be incremental and it's stuff that, you know, it, we have to look at the individual step and not the whole journey. But I think that we're going to get a lot done and I'm excited. Thank you so much for joining the conversation today. I've learned so much from both of you. Daniele and Mike, where can we find you on social media? Uh, you can find me at, at Mike underscore Indian and my website is The Groucho 10 www.thegroucho.co.uk. Amazing. Oh, oh, me. <laughs> my name is Daniele Dash. You can find me at Daniel Dash on all social medias and you can visit my website danieldash.com where you can find all of the articles that I write about race, gender and popular culture. This has been your Broccoli Weekly's bonus roundup of 2019 and the last decade. I want to wish every single one of you a happy new year. We officially launch with our first episode Sunday 12th of January. I've been your host Diora and you can find me on Twitter at the Diora. Credits of the clips used and information can be found on our website, www.yourbroccoliweekly.com. You can join the conversation and share your views using the hashtag YourBroccoliWeekly. If you liked what you heard, why not give us a rating and review on your favourite podcast app? And if you loved what you heard, tell your friends. Your Broccoli Weekly is available on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, Pocket Casts and all your favourite apps. This episode was produced by Renee Richardson and Cass Denton with additional help from B. Duncan. Our show artwork and logo are by Mars West and Robin Landau. Video assets by Barney Lee. And thank you to James Bartlett and Ardit Shah from Fourth Floor Creatives Insights team. This is a Broccoli production.